we have our plans and the universe kind of laughs at us sometimes. When you have an adversity, you have to you have to say, well, what are the opportunities there? My musicality has improved so much. Last spring, when St. Louis was largely shut down due to the coronavirus, it gained a pair of new residents. Walter Parks and his wife left their home just outside Manhattan for Webster Groves. It was a huge change. But Walter says his bucolic new environment has only fueled his creativity. He's a guitarist with serious chops. For 10 years, he was the sideman guitarist to the late Richie Havens. He's co-written with Tom Petty's former drummer, Stan Lynch, and performed at Lincoln Center with Judy Collins. He tours with his own trio, Swamp Cabbage, with his solo show, Swamp by Chandelier, and with an Americana Spirituals project. And he's a member of a popular folk duo called The Nudes. Now, the record he plans to release soon is titled Walter Parks and the Unlawful Assembly. Here's a not-quite-final track from that album called Shoulder It. Such a long way back Some people keep pushing on that You can't board the mercy train Because you laid the track When you shouldered it When you shouldered it When you shouldered it And that is Shoulder It from Walter Parks and the Unlawful Assembly. Now, Walter Parks will perform a solo show at the Blue Strawberry in the Central West End on Thursday. And he joins us today to talk about his music, his life, and of course, that big move. So, Walter Parks, welcome. Hi, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me today. So it's not every day that a musician moves here from New York City. I understand your wife grew up in Webster Groves. Did she have family reasons for wanting to be here last spring? Oh yeah, when the when the uh, when the COVID hit, uh, we we just kind of took a look and at our own careers and our own situations, not having kids and being in New York City, and we said, you know, we got to balance all that out with Margot's parents who are still alive and uh, and needing help in the in the COVID times, and we thought, you know, we got to get to Webster and and just. Uh, get food for them and to handle deliveries and that sort of thing. So that's what we did. Now, I understand in addition to her parents, you had another reason for wanting to be here. Uh, You grew up in Jacksonville, Florida with the late Tom Townsend. He's the founder of Pianos for People and was absolutely a beloved figure here in St. Louis. How did him living here tie into your interest and willingness to move here? Well, you know, as as Tom and I were reaching the... uh, 
twilight years, I guess you'd say, of our, our careers and so on, we, we said, you know, we really got to play some music again and, and maybe put the band together. And that sort of sounds spinal tapish. And we, we laughed at that, you know, who cares if we put this band together again that, that started in a garage band when we were teenagers. But here's why it, it mattered to us, is that when we stopped playing, and there was almost a 30-year span between the time of our teen years and our adult years. When we got back together again, it was seamless. Hmm. Uh, musically comp- completing each other's sentences and so on. And we wanted, that, we wanted that attachment again. We wanted to continue the adventure with music that we started when we were young, young when we were boys, really. Mm-hmm. And we both appreciated St. Louis as a great music town, even though Tom's living, if you will, his professional career was in advertisement. He loved this town for its musical, um, uh, his, 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 just, it was an epicenter for him. Hmm. So, Well, hearing yeah. you talk about your friendship, it just sounds like magic. There's so few friendships in life that have that kind of just rhythm and, and are able to last that long. And uh, Tom passed away after uh, suffering from a really rare, aggressive form of cancer. Um, that must have been right around the time you moved here. Is it hard being here with him gone? Oh, it was uh, it was one of those moments of bittersweet, and I remember calling Tom's wife uh, and saying, "We're we're we're finally coming to town," and and there was we just kind of both had a tear, you know, and mm-hmm. because this is what Tom would have wanted, and you know, when 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 you start with somebody as we did, repairing our musical instruments ourselves, <laughs> and. <laughs> These were in the days when if you wanted to take an electric electric piano and tune it, if it got out of tune, you had to open it up and add a little solder to the piano key or file off a little solder to the on the piano key to get it to play in tune. When you start at that level of an understanding of music and you go all the way to adulthood, it was something that you were really looking forward and continuing. It was an adventure. But I have to say, every time I came back to St. Louis with my various bands and played in clubs like in Soulard and so on, Tom was always there. Hmm. And uh, so we knew that St. Louis was going to be a great town to play in. And it was, you know, life changes things. You, We have our plans and the universe kind of laughs at us sometimes. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you made good on that move. And boy, you picked a weird year to show up here in that there hasn't been that music scene over the past year. Everybody has been distanced at home. Was it hard to get your creative juices flowing in this brand new suburban environment so different from where you were used to living in Jersey City? Well, Sarah, it, uh, you know, I just, I, I'm, I believe that when you have an adversity, you have to, you have to say, well, what are the opportunities there? And how can I turn this around best I can for, for my own betterment, for my own career and so on? So the imperative now is continuing to reach out, but we're doing it now through videos mm-hmm. and uh, live recording. But so it's the COVID has imposed upon artists a whole new skill set. Not only do you have to be a master of recording technology, but now we have to be TV engineers. We have to <laughs> we have to put on a show now, and everything that's recorded sonically has to be good, but it also simultaneously has to be 
good visually. And uh, so that's, you know, a whole new skill set was was required of us. And all of a sudden, consequently, more funding is needed. And one yeah. thing leads to the other. But the good thing about it, and this is what I, one of the one of the side benefits in a sense, is that my musicality has improved so much because I thought, Sarah, if I'm going to be seen while I'm playing, if it's no longer just enough to put out a record that people listen to, if they then have to see me doing it, and I have to do a perfect version from start to finish, unlike the way you do it in a recording studio where you can punch in things and fix things, it's, a, it's an imperative that I've enjoyed living up to. Hmm. And uh, even at 62 years old, I'm, I'm still learning. I'm still improving my craft. And uh, I'm sort of excited about that. And it's this time indoors has given me um, a, a sort of, I think, a sure foot to, to get my act together, so to speak, for when the COVID really lets up, I'll be really ready. Wow, that's that's such a good attitude there. And you're really putting your money where your mouth is. You've been working on this upcoming record. This is called Walter Parks and the Unlawful Assembly. I understand you've been going uh, back and forth. You've been recording it in Brooklyn. Is that right? Yeah, we we started before the COVID hit. We started the, the, the recording session in Brooklyn, New York. So, you know, I again, I it's been very, very challenging, and sometimes we get shut down by weather, but mm-hmm. I still, every month, I get in the car and I drive to Brooklyn, and we work on the record a little bit, and so now it's completely recorded. We're just in the mixing stage of it, and I, I'm going to be, I'm really excited to share it with you. I'm glad you got to play that little advanced cut, because we're real proud of the way that sounds, but well, I, and- still, I still keep at it, because... You know, at the end of the day, nobody cares. The audience doesn't really care or take into consideration the the amount of work that it takes into a product uh, a project. They just they don't nobody really thinks of how many trips did this guy make between St. Louis and Brooklyn to get this thing done. They just think do they like it or not. And um, and so I have to keep hammering at it to make to make this to give this thing life. Well, that hammering, that has paid off. Um, we played the the sort of sneak peek earlier, and I'm going to play another one now. This is a swamp folktale. Uh, this is called Georgia Rice. Uh, let's listen. To the search, I pray. Hound dogs tracking back the road of peace. They like to drown me, smack into the oaky for an oaky. There's a damn good bounty when a slave break free. But you're gonna catch hell if you shelter me. I'm out looking for the St. Marie I'm gonna wait in her water, she'll set me free 
So I take my chance with the poison snake Cause the master won't hang the good money I can make He crossed the line of what a man can take Take a man from a gentleman And that is Georgia Rice. That's from the upcoming album Walter Parks and the Unlawful Assembly. My guest today is Walter Parks, who recently relocated to Webster Groves. So this song, Georgia Rice, Walter, is this based on a true story? It's based on a a folk tale, if you will. Now, I don't know that that makes it false. I, I think I think the story... Here, Here's the part of it that's true uh, mm-hmm. and is documented in... Even books like uh, William Bartram's Travels, which was written in the late 1700s, that slaves in the southeast part of Georgia working on the rice plantations would occasionally escape slavery and head to the Okefenokee Swamp, Hmm. where they could cross the St. Mary's River with a relative degree of ease. If you just headed straight down from the Brunswick, Georgia area, which is where the the rice plantations were. If you head straight down where I-95 is now, it's very open there. Now, why would why would the the runaway slaves head south? Because at certain times in in the history, Florida was Spanish. Hmm. So if you could cross the St. Mary's River, you you would ostensibly have freedom. You had to convert to Catholicism and serve the, in the Spanish army. But if you crossed right there where I-95 is right now along the coast, people would see you. There was a big bounty out for escaped slaves, and that's what the song is about. The song, the part of it that it, the part of it that becomes fiction is what I do in the song as I depict a slave going towards the Okefenokee Swamp and possibly losing his or her way Hmm. and coming upon one of the white homesteaders that lived out in the swamp. And so I imagine, I imagine that place where it's just you and another person and maybe your creator watching down all, all of this. What do you do? Do you do the right thing and help a person in need? Or do you kind of Act the way you need to be for the fellas, you know, Mm. the way that people are possibly uh, conducting themselves in the town center uh, miles away. Mm. So I fantasized that maybe the white man said, I'm going to help this escaped slave. And if I get caught doing this, it's going to be real trouble for me. But I'm going to do the right thing and help him or her get across that St. Mary's River. Mm. So it's a song of hope. That part of it is fiction, but we need that kind of hope even today. I'm I'm trying to inspire people to to say, look for opportunities in everyday life to do the right thing, to do the human thing, to help somebody out and make their life just a bit easier, especially, especially if, you know, there's nobody to witness you except for just whatever you believe in upstairs, if that's what you believe in. Hmm. So this is an imagined story, but there's a real underpinning of vigorous research here. And I know the Okefenokee has been a big focus for you. What first triggered that interest? Well, it it triggered, uh, what triggered the interest is that I, 
I had played in Richie Havens' group, or sometimes it was just him and I, for, for uh, 10 years of my life. Mm-hmm. And I, musically, I put all my eggs career-wise in that basket. I was his sideman. We traveled all over the world. And when Richie retired and subsequently passed away, I, I had to ask myself, oops, what do I do now? In the arts, there's no IRA that you lean on. There's no retirement account. There's right. no pension. So it's just like continental shelf. Now you're on your own. And here I was, you know, almost 10 years ago. And, and I thought, well, I need to, I need to survive here, Sarah. I got to look into my roots. And I, I remembered these trips that I used to take to the Okefenokee Swamp. And I saw these old railroad tracks out there, abandoned railroad tracks, now overcome by the palmettos and old boilers and so on. And I thought, if there were people out here in the middle of the swamp, surely there must have been music. And so I looked into it. In the Library of Congress, there was um, a trove of, a small trove of music that had been recorded by a man named Francis Harper who came down from the New York area. And my point of all this, and to really answer your question is I was looking for a way to artistically survive. Hmm. And I had a hunch that I could dig into my roots and, and ask myself, why do I play the way I do? Why do I have this swampy feel? Maybe there's music that came out of the swamp. And sure enough, I found it. So I'm encouraging people with this comment to, to dig around, figure out where you came from, even if it's just a neighborhood thing. Why do you... Why do you make the music or, or, or take the pictures or, or, paint, or paint the pictures that you do? What, what draws you to those things? What about where you grew up draws you to those things? And you find this sense of, of, of passionate identity about who you are, a sense of validity. And you know, Sarah, in, in the year 2018 or whatever, when I started this research, we have this thought, and I know you probably do as a journalist. It's like, oh, that's been talked about. That's been done. Let's do something unique. Mm-hmm. And, you know, artists doubt themselves. We think, well, I'm not doing anything unique here. But I imagined, I mean, I somehow, in the year 2016 or 18, whatever, I came upon something that really hadn't been opened up, this trove of music. And I started reinterpreting. I thought, well, this is a gift. And I, 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 I took advantage of the gift because... I just got inquisitive on a roots level, hmm. and I found something. I found some uncharted territory, and that's darn hard to do in this day and age. Yeah, I mean, and this I'm, is some remarkable territory, and this is to the point that the Library of Congress, um, rather than just serving as an archive that you're digging into, they're now featuring your research yeah. that, that's come out of that. That's got to feel like a, a pretty exciting development. It, it is exciting, and I'm, I, I feel a tremendous amount of pride for it. And I, I share these pieces in my live concerts. And they, the, the, the foundation of all of these swamp pieces, what, what I've done is I've reinterpreted, I've rearranged the music that was made in the swamp, mostly by people of European ancestry, that was made in the swamp between 1850 and 1945 or 1950 when people left, left that area. I've reinterpreted this music. And it's, it has, it's all based, most of it is based around hollers, which are this kind of yodeling sort of sound that they used to use as a means of communication 
<laughs> just like you and I are talking over the internet right now. Um, they were hollering. Know, they were hollering. There was no interset, internet. There were no cell phones. If they had been out on a hunt for a couple of days and came back on their house, which is in the middle of nowhere, you darn well better have your own holler because, you know, you can't just come upon a house without any announcement, just <laughs> like we do today. You can't just walk into a house. And uh, this was hollering. So what was really interesting is when I started to write these hollers out, they, they sounded operatic to me. They sounded very musical. And I remember I got the opportunity to write one of the old timers who was in his 90s at the time, but when it was recorded uh, in, 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 the, in the 1940s, he was a teenager. And I wrote him when he was an old man, and I said, I was so excited, Sarah. I was like, I'm doing all this. I'm playing in theaters all over Europe and Canada and the United States, and I'm doing these hollers. And he, he wrote me back. It's like, this is the oddest thing I've ever heard. We just were calling in the hogs. or this is, <laughs> We didn't think this was entertainment. This is just practical communication. And here you are getting people to clap for you. This, I mean, he wasn't trying to be discouraging. This is just Southeast Georgia kind of backwards mentality. And I don't mean that in a negative way. It was just practical survival to him. He didn't understand and, that, that this was art, but you found that art uh, in this practical thing they were doing. Yeah, and, and I, but, but <laughs> I'm so appreciative to the Library of Congress for them preserving this. And, uh, and I'm so appreciative to, you know, public broadcasting and so on for even caring to, to air this sort of thing. This is, this is important news for me because, and this is, I think it's important news for other folks because this kind of, this journey that I was on and that I'm still on is a journey that other artists and other people can take. And there's, there's especially in St. Louis. Well, and I, I hope that people listening to this will feel inspired by that. And I hope even beyond that, if the weather conditions permit, I hope that people will come out to catch your show. That's at the Blue Strawberry. It's this Thursday at 7.30 p.m. Tickets are available. You can see the Blue Strawberry's website to get all those details. And Walter Parks, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Sarah, this has been exciting. And, and thanks for uh, helping to get folks out to the Blue Strawberry Show. I sure appreciate it. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com.